This is the Pleasant View Baptist Podcast, a production of the Pleasant View Baptist Church, showcasing the sermons of Pastor Ed Heading and various guest speakers. With the dawn of spring, Pastor Ed is going to take us to the beach. Ergo, we're going to John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, when Jesus approaches the disciples on the beach as they're fishing. We'll find out the implications of this little fishing trip and how it changed their lives. Here is Pastor Ed. But I want to draw your attention to the screen. We'll get to our text in John in just a moment. But for our scripture reading today, I want us to look at a verse of scripture that encapsulates this entire story that we're going to talk about from John chapter 21. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul said this, Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. I think one of the greatest gifts that God gives to human beings is the gift of free will, of choice, of being allowed to make a decision for him. You know, it's interesting as we look through Scripture, God never forces himself on anyone. It's a volitional decision to choose him. And he always comes to us in a loving way, trying to draw us to himself. I think of Luke chapter 15, and it talks about there about Jesus, the representative of Jesus, the shepherd going off, going after the one, leaving the 99 behind because he's personally interested in each one coming back to the fold. The prodigal son in Luke 15 as well, where the loving father allowed his oldest son to take his inheritance, to go away into another country, live a partying lifestyle, wasted all of the money, was about to eat the food made of pigs. And it's interesting that here's a Jewish guy working with pigs, comes to the end of himself, and as he comes home, his father is waiting for him with open arms to welcome him back in, to throw a party for him. I think it's just so interesting to see that we understand that in the context of what we're about to look at. So take your Bible and look at John chapter 21, if you would. John chapter 21, if you want to look at a pew Bible in front of you, that's page 907, and it'll be up on the screen as well. But the main section of John's gospel ended with this summary statement in John 20, 30, and 31. These verses were the purpose and main goal for the Apostle John writing this book. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Some say that this book is over. Some scholars have even tried to say that someone else wrote chapter 21. But remember, John spent 18 verses, John 1, 1 through 18, with the prologue or the introduction to the book, and now 21, he's coming to an epilogue to summarize through some illustrations and some pictures to understand better what 20 verses 30 and 31 is all about. He's answering here in John 21, Jesus is, the question on the minds of the disciples, who's going to take care of us after Jesus is gone? What's going to happen? We don't know where this is all headed. They're faced with taking care of themselves for the first time in three years since deciding to follow Jesus. But he promises and he will continue to meet their needs. 
In this passage we're about to read, as Jesus meets with them in community, he's teaching them not to depend on themselves or their own human abilities as a group, but depend on God alone. And he does that through two powerful illustrations, as we'll see here in John 21. So let's look at how this reuniting of the relationship between Jesus and his disciples unfolds. First of all, the rendezvous with Jesus. Remember, they've been separated from for a while. They went and saw the tomb. Some have even seen Jesus appear to them. But here, these seven disciples are off on their own, and they're waiting for him to come and give them final instructions. So look at John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. First thing we see on your outline is the desired place. The desired place. After these things, notice that, or after this in chapter 20, was an unspecified amount of time between the events that occurred in the last chapter. The disciples were told to go to Galilee. They were to go up on the mountain and wait for Jesus to come there in Matthew chapter 20. And two times in verse 1 here we see that Jesus said that he would reveal himself. He must have been unrecognizable until he desired to remove the blinders from people's eyes or whatever he did to reveal himself to them. The location is the Sea of Tiberias. It lets us know that it's the Sea of Galilee because that sea was known by different names at different times through history. And so at this point, it was called the Sea of Tiberias. The 11 disciples must not have traveled together, as we see in verse 2, because only seven of them are listed. We assume the other two would be Andrew and Philip. Andrew being Peter's brother and Philip, who had close ties with Peter, And in other places, we see that they're listed together. They were not where they were supposed to be to meet Jesus. As I said, they were supposed to be up on the mountain. Now, some believe that, you know, Simon Peter, he was pretty impetuous, pretty impatient. He waited up on the mountain, and he finally decided, you know what, maybe Jesus isn't showing up, so let's go fishing. So he goes down to the shore, and he gets the disciples to get in the boat with him. This was not a recreational, one-time fishing expedition. This was them returning back to what was familiar, to their past life. Maybe Peter felt like he had bills to pay. Maybe, maybe since he'd been away from his family for these three years, that it was time for him to set down roots once again and be home with them. We don't know exactly why, but he decided to go fishing. So we see the default position. The default position. The disciples head back to what was familiar as a default place when everything goes south. When they didn't know what else to do, they went back to what was familiar. What about us? When trials and tribulations come, it's easy to run to the past comforts of our past life. Sometimes it's that past sin, or sometimes it's that past habit, or a place of comfort, or a place of apathy and selfishness wanting to do what we want to do to make ourselves feel good. And there's a price to be paid when we do that. It's not where God wants us. 
It's not where he wants you and I to be. Well, Jesus predicted the disciples would abandon him in John 16. He said, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus knew these guys. He knew what they were made of. He knew their hearts. And when it got hot in the kitchen, they decided to abandon the kitchen and go for where it was air-conditioned and comfortable. And so do we. We retreat to what we know and what we think is safe and sure when the heat is on. But most of the time, this is where God is pushing us to new steps of faith, to an exciting place, to a brand new adventure, a new chapter in our lives. So the fishing was about leaving behind God's work and going back to take care of themselves with their own abilities. They thought that since Jesus was leaving, it was all on them again to take care of themselves. We get that idea because if you look at verse 3 in the text, it says they got into the boat, the definite article, the. It was a specific boat, and it may have very well been Peter's boat that he had owned way back several years ago when he was a fisherman. So it was a very specific boat. And remember that most of the disciples Jesus had called to gather around him were fishermen. Well, jumping ahead to the story, notice what Jesus says in John 21, 15 to Peter. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus, as usual, got to the point, got to the core issue in the heart. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus comes to us, when God speaks to us, he often asks us questions. You know, one of the things I hated when I was a little kid was my mom coming up and saying, did you lie about something? Did you do this to your sister? It puts you at this point of you either got to tell a lie or tell the truth, right? And that's what God's doing here to Peter. Do you love me more than these? And he's saying, do you love me more than your boat? Love me more than your fishing nets, the fish, the former way of life. Jesus is making the call here to Peter to stay committed for his entire life to the work of God, no matter what comes his way. And when Jesus calls us to commitment, he's talking to us with a lifetime commitment in our hearts. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is talking about discipleship. He says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Verse 60, and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And notice what Jesus said. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's asking for commitment. He's asking for us to totally surrender. Not that we're not going to sin. We're not going to fail as we go. We're not going to need to ask for forgiveness, but our focus needs to be on him. And that's what he was calling them to do. And Jesus is making that call to even us today. It may not require moving from your house across the world to another country or another culture. For most of us, I believe it means staying right where we are, but it does require leaving our old life of sin and rejection of God and his will behind for good once and for all. It could mean that God's stretching us. He's moving us out of our comfort zone to invest in needs of others for eternal purposes. So what are you called to today? 
How are you using your vocation, your time in retirement, as a means to make a difference for God in other people's lives? There's plenty of opportunities here at our church with our Sunday children's ministries, with Awana, with our youth group, and other ministries, getting involved and even being a leader in our church. It may mean for the first time that you decide you're going to sign up and be a part of Serve Sunday. It may mean giving more financially to uh, the needs here at the church as well. It may mean volunteering in the community so that you can be a light for Christ. It may be reaching out to your neighbors now that the weather is changing and getting warmer and, oh, the bug is gone. I was going to say spring is here. Did you notice the bug on the screen? It's getting warmer. And so you can invite people over for a cookout or a meal at your house. God wants to stretch us so that we can live with the eternal perspective in view daily. In verse 3, we see that the other disciple followed Peter's lead and went fishing with them. Peter was the leader. They were the followers. Verse 3, they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, as fishermen, they knew the best time to go out and catch fish. They were experts at this, and so they went out at night. They prepared their nets. They went out and toiled and went to different locations. But isn't it interesting, even these experienced fishermen returning to a former lifestyle couldn't catch anything. How about you and I? Have you and I, like I have, tried to to tell God, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to force this square peg in this round hole. And out of my stubbornness and out of my pride, God made me miserable. God caused struggle. God caused difficulty because I was pushing against what he wanted to do. When we try to depend on our intelligence, our strength, our abilities, not surrender to God, we're not going to accomplish God's purposes. John MacArthur said this, the disciples' unsuccessful experience at something they knew how to do well was a lesson from the Lord about their inability to go back to their former lives. It's only in rare cases I've seen in my life or in other people's lives that God calls you back to your former life. There's nothing wrong with fishing. It was a respectable uh, vocation for these disciples. But God had called them not to fish for fish, but to fish for men. And as Christ followers, you will never be happy doing anything else besides what God wants you to do. You'll never be happy outside of God's will. Comedian Mark Lowry puts it this way, if God calls you to dig ditches, you would have to step down to be the president of the United States. God calls you to uh, bloom where he plants you, to use what you have for an opportunity to touch and minister to people's lives. And that's why living in community as believers in Christ helps us to be and stay where God wants us to be with him. So our application is this, may we enjoy immensely renewing past relationships. As these disciples are about to renew their relationship with Jesus, isn't it amazing as a Christian that you can uh, leave off a discussion with someone, not see them for three or four or five or ten years, and there's something about being a Christian, you gather together and you pick up the conversation right where you left off because of the commonality of the Spirit of God in our lives. The disciples are about to find that out. Well, after a wasted night of fishing, with dawn coming, the disciples decide to head for shore. Little did they know that they would encounter the resurrected Jesus. And so, second of all, the recognition of Jesus. The second main point, the recognition of Jesus. 
Look at verse 21, verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Notice the familiar challenge. Jesus had told them to do this once before. Three years prior, at the beginning of their calling. And now he's calling them back to do a similar thing. He's on the shore. The disciples don't recognize him at this point, And he sends them back out to fish once again. Notice in verse 5, Jesus' mild rebuke as he highlights their failure on their fishing expedition. Again, a question. Children, do you have any fish? Causes them to think. Causes them to ponder. He was basically saying to them and to us, do anything else than what I have called you to do and you will fail. John 15, 5, the apostle said, um, apart from me, you can do nothing. So for spiritual value and perspective, we need to rely completely on him and obey him. They probably thought, who's this guy telling us to go back out and fish once more? There was something in his voice of authority that caused them to listen. The catch was so big, they had trouble hauling it in. It's interesting that the same Jesus who prevented the school of fish to gather in the net that they had outside the boat all night long is the same Jesus that immediately when they put the net in the water this time, drove the school of fish into that same net because he's in control of all the circumstances. This is so reminiscent of an earlier event when Jesus first called these men to be his disciples. As I referenced in Luke 5, it says on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put, off, put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and then they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Jesus. Jesus called these fishermen out of fishing for fish to become fishers of men. This phrase was not invented by Jesus. This was a common term among the Greeks and the Romans of that day. To be a fisher of men in that day meant to persuade men and catch them with the truth. A fisherman catches live fish and kills them. But a fisher of men takes people who are dead in Christ and brings them to the one that can transform them and make them alive. He loved fishermen, Jesus did, because they had patience. They had persistence. They knew how to work. They had courage. They were willing to go out into the deep places. They knew how to cooperate with one another. They were skilled in using their equipment and their boat. These are great examples for us to follow when we think about ourselves catching fish for Christ. But not only that, we see the full commitment. Not only a familiar challenge, but the full commitment. These disciples finally step across the line 
and as we'll see, lived the rest of their lives to their death, many of them martyred to their death for the cause of Christ. Look at verse 7 of John 21. The disciples whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Isn't it interesting? John says, it's the Lord. And Peter was probably in a loincloth because it was the warm temperatures of the spring and the warm water. He puts on his outer garment and he jumps in the water and he's too excited to help the other disciples. Characteristically, we see John is the one who first perceives and understands something, but it's Peter who jumps out and acts upon what he sees immediately. Remember, John ran to the tomb and Peter ran past him and went into the tomb. Peter was the first one to do these things. And he leaves these guys behind to take care of the fish themselves. Now notice the detail from John as an eyewitness to corroborate the event. Peter is all in now with his relationship with Jesus. The disciples would be all in now in their commitment to the calling by Jesus for his kingdom work. You and I, we need a community of believers around us to help stay focused and to have support when we succeed and when we fail in our Christian lives. And Jesus is showing the disciples that as a group dependent upon God, they can handle anything that comes their way. He's reminding them that their faith in God will sustain them and bond them together so that they can do the kingdom work. They would need God and they would need each other going forward. And so it is true today, 2,000 years later. There's some great verses of scripture to remind us of that. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon wrote, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift them up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You and a brother and sister in Christ, and Christ in the midst, the threefold cord to give you strength in a community of believers to do God's work. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. One of my favorites is Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I like what Eugene Peterson says in the message of that verse, the wounds from a lover are worth it, kisses from an enemy do you in. We need each other. We need each other from time to time to let us know when we're headed off in the wrong direction, to give us that accountability. And so here's the application. In the church family, we are developing forever friends. Forever friends. Borrowing from Michael W. Smith. Friends are friends forever. Forever friends. Together. We continue in this story, God's gradual prodding by his kindness to bring these disciples to repentance. Our last point is the relationship renewed. The relationship renewed. Look at John 21 verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus knew that one of the best ways to have fellowship is to start with food, with food, right? It's hard to invite people around your table or go to a party somewhere and sit across from people that 
you don't like. A lot of times, most of the time, we gather together around a table. It's for fellowship as well as the sustenance, the daily needing of our food. Jesus, showing his ever-compassionate care for these wet and tired and starved disciples, had food ready for them to get breakfast started. He didn't have enough for all of breakfast. They were going to provide the fish to continue the fish fry. But he began the process. And even when you and I are out of God's will, we're never out of God's care. Just like the prodigal. He knew that he could always go home to his dad. God waits for us with open arms every day, longing for us to come to him and spend time with him. He's always willing to restore any part of our broken relationship with him. He's a humble God. And I just think it's amazing that Jesus, the one the Bible says was part of creating the world, was willing to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. And here in this passage, he's making breakfast for these disciples. He's serving them. He's gently reminding them to let God meet their needs. Philippians 4.19, And my God, Paul says, will supply every need. I love that word every. Emotional, physical, financial, every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And one who walked with God, who was close to God, who had his time of sin and came back, David said this in Psalm 37 toward the end of his life, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or as children begging for bread. Food. Jesus knew that this would get their attention, would provide the place to talk to them. Second of all, we see the fellowship in community. The fellowship. In verse 10, Jesus said to the disciples, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the nets ashore full of large fish, 150 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. We continue to notice John sharing eyewitness testimony the fact of 153 fish, the fact the net did not break, corroborates the fact that he was there when this occurred. Now, as you think about that, theologians have pondered for many years, what does 153 fish mean spiritually? Well, guess what? There is no spiritual significance whatsoever. There's no magic numbers of all that. But probably as fishermen, what they were doing was dividing it up among them so they could go and sell it in the market, and so they were counting it out. Some commentators believe they were so wowed by the miracle that they wanted to count it to believe it for themselves, and maybe this set a record in their mind. We don't know, but John gives us that eyewitness account. But in verse 12, Jesus calls the disciples to full fellowship with him around a meal. They were guilty of disobedience, their desire to return to their old familiar life, but now they're awed by the supernatural, resurrected Jesus Christ standing before them. They're uneasy around them. They're uncertain. They're hesitant. Jesus, it says in verse 13, he was the one that said, come on, guys, eat. He brought the food to them. They were kind of squeamish about stepping in there and grabbing the food. They were thinking to themselves, but stopped short of saying, who are you? Jesus was teaching them in a loving and relational way that obedience will bring blessing. 
that following the ways of the Lord, even though we do not know where that leads, will be the best direction that we should go in our lives. He was helping them overcome the fear of failure by teaching them to trust in the Lord. And as we'll see next week, that Jesus will show them that he's the God of the second, the third, the 50th, the 100th chance in their life that he can forgive and use them. As we think about that, we always know that we can come and come to God at any time, but we have to come on his terms, willing to turn away from our sins. Well, this event settled in the minds of the disciples once and for all. They're calling to serve Jesus Christ for the rest of their lives. It's also a great reminder, as John MacArthur writes in this quote, he said, the Lord uses weak and sinful people to advance his kingdom work because there are no other kinds of people. I love that quote. I love that quote. Because we have to come to him and realize that we cannot do it in ourselves. That we have to come weak. That we have to come and realize that we're sinners. But that he is the one that can forgive us, who can energize us, who can allow us through his Holy Spirit to carry out the work that he wants us to do. And when we wake up every morning and realize it's all about him and not about us, that's the place where God can use us. And the great thing about Christianity is God can use anyone who will come and realize they're weak and they need a Savior. Well, John doesn't give us any further details of the meal, but he moves in verse 14 to a summary statement. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Notice three invitations stand out in this entire gospel. In John chapter 1, verse 39, Jesus said, come and see. In John 7, 37, he says, come and drink. And in John 21, 12, he says, come and dine. Come and fellowship with me. How loving of Jesus to feed Peter before he dealt with his sin, dealt with his disobedience. How he wanted Peter to be dry, to be warm, to be fed before he got down to the spiritual matters that needed to be discussed in his life. This is a great example for us to follow as we care for each other, people in the family of God and people outside. Certainly the spiritual is more important than the physical, but people really don't care what you know until they know that you care. Until you take care of their physical needs, they're not always open to share with you the needs that they have spiritually in their hearts and their lives. This brings me back to the importance of relationship and living in community with one another as demonstrated in John's story today. The importance of the connect groups are already being evident since our transition in January, on January the 14th. We see a 25% increase of people coming. There are people coming to our connect groups, which start at 1045 right after the service, that haven't been in the Sunday school hour in years. And so it's a real encouragement to think about that. And even better, I love the sharing and the caring and the praying together. It's so rich. Some examples I've seen of community going on since we began our connect groups. There was one family in our church that recently moved into a new house. And two men from their connect group helped them in moving into their house. I thought that was a great thing. They do on their own. I think of also... Uh, After the meeting last Sunday night, a couple from our church took someone who's new out to dinner to get to know them for the first time in a personal way. That's an amazing thing. There was a a, a couple families that got together for an Easter meal, 
And they cooked some extra food intentionally and they went to one of the neighbors and dropped food off at their house. This is what was posted on our Facebook, overwhelming thankfulness. These kids are so grateful for the members of the congregation who blessed our family with this feast. In the midst of the dark valley, our family is trudging through. Thank you for being a beacon of hope and a representation of all the goodness and kindness in the world. A wonderful reflection of our Savior who died for us and defied death and his resurrection. Thank you for your support. We're blown away by your unexpected gift to us. Happy Easter. And then I think also a Thursday when I met with our custodian, Barb Bombeck. We found out that she probably 99% chance she has cancer. I met with her at Genesis East. And the tears streaming down her face because our church sent flowers and I stopped by to pray with her. This is what community is all about. This is what we not only need for ourselves, but this is what the world needs to have as well. Think of another story of a family member who recently went through the loss of their parent. And one of the siblings said to them, it's amazing how many people from your church came out to the visitation and to the funeral. These are the things that bring us together, community, connectedness. Well, the application here is, are you enjoying the community and fellowship in our connect groups and Sunday school? Are you enjoying the community and the fellowship in our connect groups and for our kids going down, downstairs in Sunday school? And as we continue to build loving and strong and caring communities in our connect groups and our men's group, we had a wonderful evening Thursday night, our women's Bible studies, wherever it may be in our church. May we take that beyond our groups and share that community with new people who join us and are new to our church, but also for those outside of our church who need loving people to come around them. This is how we can lovingly win others to Christ. And so our key thought as we finish today is let's celebrate the incredible value of relationships in the church family. Let's celebrate those. I love to continue to tell these stories and I hope we have many more to share about the community that's going on here and how it's affecting people in our church but outside of our church. I want to finish where I began in Romans 2.4. It says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? At the bottom of the page of your notes, I want you to read this quote. This is so important. We don't want unity, and we don't want community for community or unity's sake. The way we develop community and unity is when we are focused on the Lord. And as we worship the Lord together and we look to him, that is when we grow closer together. That's always been my advice in premarital counseling and counseling couples that are going through difficult times. It's focusing on him. Look at this quote by Tozer. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They're of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other, than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for the closer fellowship. As we keep our eyes upon the Lord, that will draw us closer together. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ed. For more information about the Pleasant View Baptist Church, head to our website, 
PleasantViewBETT.com. On behalf of the congregation of PVBC, I'm Jeremy Jones, and we're again thanking you for listening to this edition of the Pleasant View Baptist Podcast, where we're connecting, growing, and serving in Christ.